news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we have two authors joining us to discuss their queries, Kelly and Paul. And Kelly's going to kick us right off with her first query letter. Will you read that for us, Kelly? Sure, thanks for having me. Dear Cece Lira, Carly Waters and Bianca Murray, The Girl Behind the Gun, complete at 83,000 words, is an adult contemporary suspense novel with mental health aspects, an unreliable narrator and complicated family dynamics similar to House of Correction and Sharp Objects. Please note this dual POV novel deals with bullying and violence. Quinn McElroy was 13 when her father walked into a school council meeting and shot the parents of the kids who made her life hell and accidentally killed her best friend. 16 years later, Quinn, now a published author, is being cyberbullied by someone from her past. With her career on the line and unaddressed guilt heavy on her shoulders, she decides to go back and confront the bully herself. Ashley Mann bullied Quinn, but at 13, she didn't realize her attempt at popularity would cost her father and her reputation. When her husband cheats, she's forced to return to the city that shunned her with two kids unaware of her history. Once in Fairfield, Quinn fixates on the victim's families, stalking their homes, businesses, and children. Her actions force Ashley to file a protective order, even though it will expose her children to the truth about her past. 
When the threats increase and someone lands in the hospital, Quinn is the prime suspect, but she's not the only stalker in town. I have a background in communications and journalism and co-host the hashtag Thrills and Chills Twitter chat for authors of suspense, mystery, thrillers, and horror. I see my brand as female-led suspense that takes a wide-lens look at complex issues. I'm married to G.I. Joe, and we're raising two avid readers and a rambunctious Airedale Terrier. Currently, I write in the mornings and coach boxing yoga during the day. Thanks for your time and consideration. Sincerely, Kelly Malako. Amazing, Kelly. Thank you so much. If you turn that into boxing yoga with wine, I'm totally there because lately I need to beat the shit out of everything. Right. Okay. Cece, would you like to kick us off and let us know what you think of that query letter? I want to kick us off and I will also be joining the punching fest with wine. So Kelly, please know that this is a really great query letter. Did an amazing job. It's super polished. Really, really great. I'm going to give you notes, but if this landed in my inbox, I would 100% keep on reading with so much enthusiasm and curiosity because you did make me curious and that's the goal. So one question I had is, is it dual timeline? When I read the query letter, right? When I read the pages, I feel like that was kind of answered, but I was like, well, I wonder if it's dual timeline or not, because you are telling me it's dual POV. And I think I would include that information. I also wonder if there's room to escalate attention in the plot paragraph that ends with, but she's not the only stalker in town. Currently, all the tension is in either the backstory, if this isn't dual POV, or the past chapters, if this is dual POV. And then we do get the line about, well, but she's not the only stalker in town, which does make me, of course, very curious about the present day too. But then I'm just wondering, like, could we say a little bit more about that without giving spoilers? At this point, though, again, like I said, I am trying to think of ways to make this even better because it's really, really great. So love your author paragraph. You all in all did a really great job. Amazing, Cece. Thank you. Carly, was there anything that you wanted to add to that? I echo all of the same sentiments. I think you did a really great job here. I'm wondering if our comps are right. I don't know. Again, this I haven't read the whole book, so it's always hard. But Sharp Objects, I think, is getting a little old at this point because I think that was in the, I don't know what year that was, like 2006 or something. So it's getting a little bit old. So And this feels really fresh. Like your, your pitch feels really fresh. So I would maybe think about if we can do a little bit of an update on the comps, but but it's really, really strong. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Kelly, did you have any questions for Carly or Cece based on the query letter? Actually, not yet, I guess. No, that was great. Thanks for... Are you able to Are you able to answer about the dual timeline in terms of Cece's question? Yes, it's not a dual timeline. There is some flashbacks, but they're, they're limited. Most of the attention is actually present day. Interesting, because, and now we're going to get into the pages, the page starts with present. And I took that to mean present day, which led me to assume that I was going to get past day chapters. Is that wrong? There are some flashbacks but they're limited. Okay, I think that this is an opportunity to talk about the difference between dual timeline and flashbacks, right? Dual timeline is obviously when a story is actually taking place in two different timelines, as the name would suggest. And so when you use a timestamp that says present, you are telling me that I'm gonna get more than one timeline. 
Otherwise, there's no point because every novel has, you know, one or two flashbacks. So, so I would remove that if this is not dual timelines, as you say. So that's, that's a note that I was not expecting to give, but I'm glad that we touched on just because it's going to be promising something that you won't deliver. And it's not good or bad. I'm not saying dual timeline would make this better at all. I'm just saying that, you know, it, it won't match expectations. Okay, Kelly, will you give our listeners a rundown of what's in those opening pages? Sure. In the excerpt I sent, Quinn is talking to her therapist. She's uncomfortably awkward. The reader sees her mirroring the therapist's relaxed body posture and struggling to react in a normal manner to their conversation. Quinn tells her therapist she's being author bullied. Someone is targeting her with bad reviews online and across social media. It's affecting her sales and her agent decided to hold off on sending out her next book because of it. Whoever is posting is tied to her past in Fairfield. Her therapist tries to talk her through ways to handle this and Quinn suggests going back to the town she left 16 years ago. This time she needs to face her bullies. There's a very brief segment of the other point of view character as well. Ashley Mann arrives in Fairfield in a beat-up pickup truck with her two kids. She doesn't want to be here. She told herself when she left she'd never go back, but her husband cheated and she has nowhere to go. When she pulls up in front of her childhood home, her mother is on the driveway talking to her neighbor and Ashley is thrust right back into the past she left. Wonderful. Thank you, Kelly. Okay, Cece, now you can dive into those opening pages. My first note is about the opener. For anyone who attended Carly and my writing the perfect first five pages class, We talk about how the opener, for the purposes of the class anyway, was the first paragraph. And that might be a sentence or even a word sometimes, or that might be a very, very long paragraph. Your opener right now is not doing the job of making me curious. It's Quinn McElroy sat with her discomfort, perched on the edge of the couch, hands on either side of her thighs, her fingers drummed on the soft ribs of the fabric. Is it poorly written? Of course not. It's a really great, two really great lines, actually. I don't think they're the right starting lines, right? Like they're not doing your story justice. If you want to keep the scene as the starting point in the novel, which I have notes on later, I would actually use, you'd have to tweak a little, little, the line about how Dr. Land's eyes always took in so much more than Quinn wanted to give her. I thought that made me a lot more curious. It would make me ask the question of, ooh, who is Dr. Lan? And why doesn't Quinn want her to know everything? And that just feels like a stronger starting point for me. And believe me, your first line matters a lot. Your opener, I should say, matters a lot. So then that's one note. Another note I have is, and please know that I am... Like I I set a high bar when it comes to this, just because of the way my brain works. I did not buy that her agent would be moving the, her publication date because of the bullying. It seemed completely unrealistic. First of all, the fact that they would be affecting her sales. Hasn't it just started the bullying? Like it's recent, right? So we wouldn't have seen the sales be affected. It doesn't happen that fast. And saying that, oh, the comments might be worth paying attention to. She wants to rework the ending of my latest book and wait to publish. That doesn't that doesn't seem realistic to me. It doesn't feel like a conversation that we would actually have in the backstage of publishing. So maybe it would happen if there were more and then we didn't get enough details on the bullying, which again is a note I will get to in a second. But right now it's just, we're not buying it. And you're going to be sending this to publishing professionals, right? So probably my guess is that they'll read this and agree with me. We'll go, wait, that just wouldn't happen. We've talked about how many acquisitions editors have an issue with main characters who are authors. They just don't want to read about it. And sometimes people speculate that it's because they're too close to the profession. I actually have a theory that one of the reasons is because a lot of debut, hopefully debut authors, 
don't know what it's like to be a published author yet, but then they imagine and they write a character who is a published author, but then it's not realistic. The dynamics just don't match. Either the dynamics with their agents don't match or with their editors don't match reality. So, so that's a note I have for you. It just didn't feel realistic to me at all. Another thing is that her dialogue with her therapist, I don't think that we're sitting into a therapy session. So for example, on page, where am I? Page three, I noticed that we got plenty of good action beats, but very little interiority on Quinn's part. So I'm wondering, like, if her thoughts and feelings match the dialogue perfectly, is this the right place to start? Because it just feels info dumpy, right? Like her telling him is a way for her to tell us. But I think it would be so much more interesting if her thoughts and feelings didn't match what she was saying necessarily, at least not, you know, there should be more layers. I also worry that a therapist wouldn't say the things Dr. Lan is saying. Essentially, the therapist is encouraging her to interact with the bully, like reach out. And that doesn't seem realistic at all. It just felt like it was coming out of left field, especially since, I mean, she's calling this person a bully. She's not saying it's just a bad review. So I thought that was odd. Another thing that I thought was really, really odd is that the therapist didn't ask what the comments were about, you know? Like, we understand what the comments are causing, potentially changing the ending of her latest book, potentially moving the pub date, but I don't understand why wouldn't the therapist be asking, like, what do the comments say? What are the comments about? We know it's about her past, but that's just the topic. We don't know what exactly. So these are two intelligent people, right? An author and a therapist. They are assuming who, who's writing the comments, the victim's families. They're assuming all these things. The internet is filled with stalkers and people with bad intentions. So we don't think that the therapist would be recommending that she, that she reach out. I think the therapist would be talking about, you know, what the comments are about. And I'm guessing that the reason why you haven't shared this is because you want to keep us in suspense. But I don't think it's working. I think it's, it's more frustrating than curiosity inducing. We have no idea what the specifics are of either of the two things they're discussing. Quinn's past, we don't know what the specifics are, and the comments, we don't know what the specifics are. And so I just feel frustrated. There's another thing too, at the very end, therapist says, I think this will help you move on with your life. And we don't know what that means either. We don't know what about her life needs moving on from. So I recommend revising the first chapter. I don't think it's starting in the right place. I think that the therapist's office would be an interesting place to start if there were a disconnect between her thoughts. And I think that you should reveal more information about what the comments are about. I just think that that makes more sense. When it comes to Ashley's chapters, one thing that I thought was really interesting is that as they're approaching the house, Ashley says, that sounds fun. You'll love living here. And we know from the query letter that, you know, her husband cheated on her and she moved because of that. And it's interesting that she would have told her kids that they're living there. I would have assumed this is not good or bad, but that she would have said, we're going there for a little while, right? Because she's probably figuring things out. So that was a really interesting verb. And I wondered if it was intentional, if it was a clue about her emotional situation, about where she is mentally. Because yeah, I feel like the kids would have asked her how long they'll be living there for. Because that's just something kids would ask. And I wonder if she's answered that question. So these are the questions that I was asking myself. As well, when we see Mark Solomon, I think there's a tweak that's needed in terms of the emotional calibration. Right now, Ashley is, she sees him chatting with her mom, I believe. And then there's like Mark Solomon. And then we see them waving and stepping back from the drive to let Ashley back into the garage. And then we get the sight of him push the hair up on her arms. That's not the order, right? Like the order should be, she sees him before she even says his name in her head, the hair on her arms go up. 
because it's a visceral emotion. And so it's really, really important to make sure that the emotional calibration is working. And that's a minor tweak. It's really just about messing with the order. And now I want to hear what you think about all my very, very long rambling comments. Just before we go to Kelly, Carly, was there anything else you wanted to add? Nothing major. I just want to give a plug to the episode that went live today. I was actually listening to it myself. Cece interviews Ellen Hildebrand and Ellen Hildebrand was talking about she in 28 Summers, how these two characters or, you know, the the main character gets a call that changes her life, which sets her to kind of go back to Nantucket. And, And that kind of like coming home trope. I love the coming home trope. And I think a lot of people do. But I think what you did here was both characters have this coming home moment and it feels too mirrored to me that both of them are kind of talking about like coming home and these both both of these opening chapters so I would listen to that episode actually obviously plugging your own podcast because I thought it was great Ellen was talking about why that like why she did it that way and so you can kind of get into Ellen's head actually as she explains how you have that moment of, of coming home so I, I would say listen to that but as I said I'm not convinced we need both of them to be coming home or suggest that both of them are coming home in these mirrored pages it kind of feels too cutesy for me because I think you're going to some dark places with this book which is great so the kind of it felt a little cutesy to me to have this mirrored that was my take thanks Carly before we go to Kelly I just want to say in Kelly's defense the tv show that deals with publishing which is younger they sell the book one week the next week they have the cover and the next week they're having the launch party so you know people are prepared to suspend disbelief (laughs) when it comes to these things Um, I just want to echo that that's so true like I used to think that suits didn't accurately portray being a lawyer but younger is even worse with publishing (laughs) i'm in the second season the fact that that woman is 40 but people believe she's 25 is not the most unrealistic part of the show (laughs) oh i was just gonna say i'm in the second season right now and i watch it like very slowly because i'm like i just don't know how much of this i can handle but like i love nico's character so much and i just adore him And then Kelly as well, you know, if it's important for you to have this kind of maverick therapist, you know, who says inappropriate things or whatever, you can always say that, you know, she's seeing this therapist who is known for their weird style or something like that, so that it makes sense to us that the therapist is kind of telling her things that we wouldn't expect from a usual kind of therapist, you know, that the therapist is known for their weird style or different kind of approach. But now we're handing it across to you, Kelly. Perfect. Well, thanks for all of that feedback. I've actually rewritten the first chapter multiple times. And so this, I've kind of hit the point with this that I've gotten so much feedback that half the time, you know, I rewrite and then I, I think I like what I wrote before and I keep flipping back and forth. So I, I wasn't 100% happy with the first chapter, how it is right now. And initially when I wrote it, it was kind of all interior. Quinn was running and just going through her thoughts and she was already back in town. So maybe this means that I need to go back and look at how I had it then or maybe merge the two somehow. No, don't have her running. Don't have her doing... It's important to have her interacting with someone. Something else. I like Bianca's idea about the maverick therapist. It seems like, Kelly, you originally had a chapter that was mostly interiority. And then it seemed like you moved completely away from interiority to something happening. So remember, it's just finding that balance. It's not one or the other. We definitely don't want to start with our characters alone, where they're all in their heads. So we do want to see them interacting with somebody. But then perhaps go back and look at that opening chapter where you had her running and all that interiority highlight the interiority stuff that was important and see how you can perhaps integrate that into the therapy session. I was just going to say, I think 
having her say something and then narratively feel the opposite or, you know what I mean? Like, so maybe she's saying something to the therapist, but like she's lying to herself or she's lying to the therapist. You know what I mean? Like creating that dynamic of what she's saying and what she's feeling are different. I think that could make it a little bit more complex. Great. Thanks. Okay. Kelly, carry on. I like that. Yeah, I can definitely see that working. And I think that Quinn is so socially awkward that she she does kind of tend to mimic people's behavior. So I could see her, you know, mimicking with her words and but in her head, she's going through what she's really feeling. So I think that I could do that. In in terms of the sort of maverick therapist, do you do you specifically need the therapist telling her to kind of do these unusual things? Or are you able to pull that back? What was your thinking in terms of the therapist? I think the maverick therapist idea could work too, especially later. She keeps in touch with her therapist, obviously, as she moves back. And so that could maybe add things up later on as well. You could even like call her a life coach or like a something coach because, you know, therapists are bound by very specific legal rules. And I don't know to what degree telling someone to confront a bully online would perhaps create problems for said therapist, just in terms of ethics committees and stuff. So you could even make them a coach because that would perhaps give them more flexibility. I know it's not as regulated as a profession. Can you tell us about what are these comments saying? How come we don't know what the comments, like we have two people talking about comments and in no moment does anyone ask, what are the comments? What is actually written there? They're just comments that are derogatory about her as an author and her book. And basically, it's like every time someone tries to order her book on Amazon, the first review that pops up is just tearing it down and saying, don't waste your money. And, you know, they're not necessarily attacking her. But since she's sort of got, well, she definitely has PTSD from being bullied before and, and her dad's actions, you know, every little bully like that really hits her hard. Cece, are there things you're able to suggest for changes for Kelly to make that'll make it feel more realistic? stick to publishing, but still kind of keep those stakes high in terms of the things that she has going on with the agent, etc. Is it possible for someone to be suggesting that she didn't write the book? Because I can see that if it got traction, I can see that not not in the sense of changing the publishing date or anything that would be too much, but like someone having a conversation about it, right? Like if that got picked up, if that, you know, went viral, I don't know. It can't be too fast. Like it can't be like there was a negative comment online and, and we're already seeing effects on sales. Publishing is not that fast. It is the slowest industry in the world. It's very, very slow. The other thing I wanted to say about comments is that unfortunately authors do get bad reviews, you know, like tons of my best selling clients. Like if you're going to have some of my clients have 20,000 Amazon reviews, mostly five stars, mostly four stars, three stars. Great. There's always going to be the one, the one stars and they always get upvoted and it sucks. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's one of those horrible things about publishing and data and being an author at the modern age. So I agree with Cece. It has to be like plagiarism. It has to be something very serious because I don't know if you guys have seen these like Goodreads smear campaigns that go on. Somebody all of a sudden just decides they hate this author. And then all of a sudden there's like an onslaught of everybody go online, you know, give this person one star on Goodreads, even if you haven't read the book. Like there's awful stuff like that. And that's real life. And so I, I agree with Cece. It has to be something quite serious, like accusing somebody of something bad because just like one star review unfortunately these things happen all the time yeah and and when you see that happen i mean it was the author i've forgotten her name who wrote i think she got high one night and so she started mocking the goodreads reviewers who left her four stars instead of five stars and she started saying what's wrong with you why couldn't you just give me the extra star and she screenshotted the goodreads reviews and put them on twitter and of course the bookstagrammers who were reviewing the book giving it four stars saw that they were very very upset the whole of bookstagram then went and started 
started giving her book one-star reviews, even though it was four stars on the day it came out. So those kinds of things build traction rather rather quickly. What are you thinking, Kelly? I like all these suggestions, honestly. I think uh, I would have to work on working in the plagiarism, but I think that would just up the stakes, and I like that. And I can see what you're saying about that being more, you know, like it's serious right away. They have to deal with this. So I like it. Yeah. Another idea is to just do away with the author bullied, using your term, altogether. You could find a different reason for her to go home. So yeah, it has to either be something really serious or completely unrelated. Just because the, it feels forced, right? Like she got bad reviews. Like Carly says, all authors get bad reviews. It's just a part of the, of the job. And then the therapist makes a connection with the f- victim's families of something that we don't even really know what exactly he's talking or she's talking about. I just assumed a therapist was a man. I hate my brain. And 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 it just feels forced, you know? It feels like you're telling me that you got a bad review and then the therapist is like, well, then why don't you go back home and talk to the victim's families? It just didn't... So I think that doing away with it altogether and finding a different reason for her to go back home might be the way to go. Or, yes, something very, very, very serious. And it could even be, like, the comments could be about the thing that happened to her as a kid. Like, and then it's not an issue of it affecting her sales or anything like that. It's just an issue of it's bringing up the past. Someone is outing her. Someone is outing, you know, whatever happened to her when she was younger. And that's messing with her head. She has writer's block. She can't work on her next book. And then her her therapist says, well, you know, sometimes the best way is to... Because I can see a therapist say, go back home and confront your origin story or whatever. That, That makes total sense. Something that I was also just thinking about now, and it's very topical, is cancel culture. So there was that PR person who got on a flight to go to South Africa, tweeted without realizing how much is lost in tone, said, going to South Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. And then got on the plane. And by the time she landed in South Africa, there were people in South Africa waiting for her at the airport, booing her as she came out because of this comment that she had made. And she had spent 15 hours in a plane, completely oblivious to the fact that she had created a complete and utter shitstorm with a tweet without thinking what the repercussions would be. So maybe as well, you know, the author says something on social media that perhaps leads to her being cancelled and leads to all of these other things happening as well. So so there's there's a lot you can do there, Kelly, a lot. Final comments. If you want to go with that really great idea, read So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson because there's lots of good, you know, it's nonfiction. There's lots of good material there that you could use to weave in authenticity. Yeah, and cancel culture is like a hot topic these days, so I think it's great to work into a book anyway. All right, Kelly, before we say goodbye to you, do you have any other questions? No, this was great. I I really appreciate you taking the time and giving the feedback that you did. Thank you for coming. We really appreciate it. We know it's a really brave thing to do and we really, really, really thank you for that. Yeah. And we love the brainstorming and we hope it's it's going to stand you in good stead down the line. Thanks so much, Kelly. Right. Our next author that we have on is Paul. Paul, welcome to the show. Can we ask that you read us your query letter? Sure. Dear Ms. Waters, I recently completed a coming-of-age novel I've been working on for 27 years, although the story only really began to take shape when another character took over in 2013. Titled Beyond These Tenements, The Sky is Blue, it's a tragicomic trip, pun intended, through Catholic high school in the 1970s, with themes touching on gender, race, and class. I told the story with humor because that seemed like a less common way to approach coming-of-age material, but I also think it's filled with sharp insights and is ultimately moving. It's 72,000 words with a first-person male narrator, and some chapters told in third person through a female character central to the story. 
Bill, the male narrator, is a middle-class suburban kid sent to an urban Catholic school. Danny, his best friend, is a poor girl and brilliant student. His influence on her is undermining, and eventually they switch places with him ascending and her descending. And yes, there's romantic entanglement too. Bill ultimately enters recovery as Danny is undone. The tale is told from a retrospective point of view as he regrets his effect on her. There's a strong voice and sense of place as the novel largely takes place in the small city of Central Falls, Rhode Island. I should note that this novel evolved out of events that have long stayed with me, albeit com completely altered in the service of a good story. I wrote it with an adult audience in mind, but it will likely appeal to YA audiences too. The most similar work I've read is Dennis Johnson's early work, with the main difference that this is a coming-of-age story. I've spent my career in journalism, from daily newspapers to tech writing, so I've published thousands of journalism pieces, plus a well-regarded book on the stock market. I have an English degree from Western University and had a 4.0 in the Johns Hopkins part-time writing program, but other demands in my rather glacial pace as a writer kept me from completing my master's. My time in the Hopkins writing program introduced me to Richard Peabody, who gave me invaluable editing assistance on this. The one honor I can claim is a Maryland State Arts Council grant for my writing in 1993, but I am otherwise new to fiction publishing at the youthful age of 58. I hope you enjoy the excerpt below and find it worth your time. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. Wonderful, Paul. Thank you. All right, Carly, what did you think of the query letter? All right. So I read the query letter, and the first thing I wanted to do was start making my notes like I normally do. And then I had this overwhelming urge, which is something I never do, and I don't think I've done in the history of the podcast, which is to rewrite your query for you, <laughs> because I almost felt like that was easier <laughs> than telling you what we had to cut. And so in the process of rewriting your query letter for you, I started kind of striking things out and being like, you know, what do we need here? What do we not need here? And then I realized I actually don't know enough about your book. Like, I feel like what you did was you talked a lot like around the book and then in the query letter I didn't get as much plot as I wanted so so I have all these notes for you in terms of like what we should cut but I actually want to read to you the query that I wrote for you about this novel which I imagine it to be I'll read you what I wrote Again, the reason that I normally don't do this on the podcast, even though it's like very tempting for me to want to do it, sometimes it takes a while, right? And I also don't always know your book. And so I can't rewrite everybody's query for them. But anyway, I'll, uh, I'll read you what I wrote. Okay. And you tell me what the differences are here. Okay. Dear Ms. Waters, I'm seeking representation for my novel, book title here, because I didn't know what your book title was at the time. A dual POV 72,000 word coming of age novel set in 1970s Catholic high school in Central Falls, Rhode Island. That would be perfect for fans of Dennis Johnson's early work. Bill, a middle-class suburban kid, is sent to an urban Catholic school where he meets Danny, a poor girl with incredible smarts. His influence on her is undermining, and eventually they swap tracks, with him ascending in his life and hers descending into darkness. Bill ultimately enters recovery as Danny is undone. Opening with a frame narrative, we go back in time to watch Bill's unfortunate influence on the brilliant Danny as they tumble into love and drug addiction at the peak of youth. I've spent my career in journalism, from daily newspapers to tech writing. I've published thousands of journalism pieces, as well as a well-regarded book on the stock market. So I kept most of your bio, and then I and then I just switched it so I. I picked something else and added it in, which was, I should note that I've been in recovery for more than 30 years. So this novel has evolved out of events that have long stayed with me, albeit completely altered in the service of good story. I hope you enjoy the excerpt below and find it worth your time. Can I send the full manuscript? Paul. So I completely rewrote it for you using the format that I prefer, which is hook, book, cook. And that's the format that I suggest everybody follow. So we start at the top with all the important information, which is, you know, the title, 
whether it's multi or dual POV, a word count. And I, the only comp that you had in here was Dennis Johnson's early work. I would put another comp in there or just like pick which work you were thinking about. And then I just made like one middle paragraph. But as I was writing this, as I said, I, I realized that I think you, you left out a bunch of the, of the drama, you know, you kind of allude to the fact that, you know, Dana's going on one track, Bill's going on the other. They kind of ultimately, you know, swap places in terms of what their trajectories are but we don't really know what happens and I know I'm just not sure from the query letter or the pages really how much of this is a novel about addiction and how much of it is about recovery or does it matter and the book is actually about something else and the sub threads are actually you know the addiction or the recovery and you had mentioned at one point like there's a love story and I just I didn't know how much of that is kind of pertinent as well so I, I felt like there, there's a lot of work you can still do here in terms of the middle paragraph because I, I, we don't really know what the conflict is and in terms of what's at stake the thing with coming of age novels is it's hard always to find what's at stake in a coming of age novel because for somebody who might be going through a drug addiction like what's at stake could be life and death right like if they're going on a bad track you know it could be really tough you know that is a bad track but other than you know health and youth which is ultimately lost in a coming of age novel because we are progressing through age i just really wasn't sure necessarily what you know what the conflict was what was really at stake and even in a coming of age novel i think we need to have something at stake so i think you really need to highlight this you know when they swap paths or when her trajectory kind of falls and when his ascends and what what happens in those moments so that's kind of my rewrite for you i i think you're just you're using a lot of prime real estate to tell us things that weren't actually necessary to the book at all. And really the point of a query letter is just to get an agent's attention, get them to request the pages. So another thing that I added to your query letter was a call to action. I suggest everybody has a call to action and the call to action here is, can I send the full manuscript, right? Like the asking, can I send it, right? And I think that's important to have that little call to action at the end. So another thing you had in yours was, I wrote it with an adult audience in mind, but it will likely appeal to YA audiences too. And that's another reason we need a, a really strong comp because we have to decide what track we're going down because agents need to know where to pitch it. Sales staff needs to know, you know, how they're going to pitch it. Booksellers need to know what category they're going to put it in. And the concept of crossover is very appealing, but crossover is not determined by the author usually. Crossover is usually determined by the audience and those who read it and receive it or teachers or, you know, booksellers, librarians, that sort of thing. So so those are my main notes. So there you go, Paul. You got the Carly's first ever rewrite of a query letter. <laughs> Before we, we move across to Paul, two things. One, I know my inbox is now going to be flooded with everybody submitting their query letters for Carly to rewrite. Please don't send them to us. We've, Carly will not have time to rewrite them. Two, I've come up with an idea that, and this is the perfect time to launch it, that I know many of you are struggling with comps. So if you can tell us a bit about your book, uh, a bit about the plot of your book, leave that message for us on our voice note feature that we now have. Go to the website, biancamaray.com, go to the podcast page. There is the link there for you to leave a voice note. If you say you're looking for a comp and leave the voice note once or twice a month, I am going to get a bookseller on and read them your information and see if they can provide comps because nobody knows books as well as booksellers. So that's something we're going to do for you as well. All right, Paul, over to you. Would you like to a reply to Carly or are there any questions you have? I had nothing other than thanks, and I wonder if I owe you any sort of a consulting fee. <laughs> I was going to mention, I'm like, you know, 
no. I it's all in the service of education. That's why I do the podcast. I I I take zero dollars because you are putting yourself out there and you're doing a great service to the writing community. So thank you, Paul. <laughs> Did Collie's rewrite sound like it was kind of what you were trying to say, Paul? It sounded great. I mean, it really brought stuff up to the top that I should have put there, but I hadn't. So yeah, it was just great work. It was really sharp and to the point and got right into it. So yeah, nicely done. If you want to answer at this stage, it might be worthwhile for us to talk about the stakes in the conflict. Do you want to t- like in that way, I could plug it into the query because we can talk about it later with the pages. But if you know off the top of your head, like what is the in- like, what's the inciting incident? And what's the conflict? I could put this under your query right now. Well, so, so to tell you more on plot, it's, you know, they, okay, so you've got this one, you know, kid who is struggling with his own background, kind of this like, you know, this uh, working class family that's kind of moved up and he doesn't quite fit. So he moves to this other school and suddenly he fits. He finds people who are like him. So there's that. The central character kind of took over, as I mentioned in my draft of the letter. And, you know, she just seemed like such a strong character that I wanted to give her more and more voice. And so the central thing is, you know, she she has this great future in science and she's really going places and you know actually she winds up with this bad guy he beats her she winds up with like head trauma and you know he's been taking drugs all along she starts taking them with him and it goes downhill from there and he gets help and she doesn't so they wind up switching places and he winds up going off to college and she winds up doing nothing basically staying you know in that little world and so Bill is the guy, like that That romance is Bill and Danny. Okay, yeah, I think this does cover that pretty well. But I think, yeah, if you, because you know your book better, I think if you plug in a little bit more of that into the template I've given you, I think that would make it even stronger. Wonderful. Okay, Paul, will you give our listeners an indication of what's in those opening pages before Carly discusses them? Sure, basically, the first few pages are actually an add-on. I had actually started it in the past tense, and actually my editor thought that there was a real problem between present tense and past tense when I was moving from a character who wasn't in the book and kind of telling it from, you know, present day. So I added a bit of a look back to the start just to give it more context and also to kind of give people a sense of where it was going without actually telling them. So it actually starts with him at an NA meeting where he sees her again, and it's been like 25 years. And she's starting to to have some medical problems from those days. And, you know, and that makes him feel sad, and that brings him into the past, and that's when he goes back to the past and the where I had started the book before. So then it flashes back to 1978, and we start with them in school, and we go from there. That's enough info. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Carly, what was your take on those opening pages? Okay, so I really like frame narratives, which is what I call like when we kind of bookend it with the present and then we're moving back into the past. So I call it frame narrative. I really like that because I don't know, it just is such a human way to kind of enter a story. So I, I, as I said, I, I did enjoy that. The one thing that I think I had a little bit of trouble with with this is the dialogue. So the way that they are speaking to each other felt very familiar. And I didn't really get a sense of how long it had been since they last saw each other. Because you said I saw Danny again at an NA meeting. And so I didn't know if it was like she came last week, or they hadn't seen each other for 15 years, or you know what I mean? Because he's staying at a hotel and then coming to the city to kind of tour around and, and speak to some NA meetings is kind of the, the sense that I got. So I think you need to break up the dialogue a bit more because I need their comment or his commentary or the narrator's commentary in between. Like I need observations because you kind of hammer them dialogue, dialogue, like they're going back and forth with this 
this banter and I would really like some observation in between to kind of have a little bit of commentary about the conversation that they're having. So I, th- I thought that that was a little bit, you know, just could do some some work there. The other thing is, so they're having this dialogue, they're having their coffee at, after the NA meeting. And then you didn't leave line breaks or asterisk breaks when you were kind of were changing locations. You had, I've got good health insurance, fortunately. Anyway, let's talk about something else. Tell me about your girls. And then the next line says, I dropped Danny back off at her car later that evening. I would do like a double line break there or some asterisks just to kind of show a change in location. And so then we go into 1977. And so the way that you wrote this, so you say, Danny was my best friend and partner in crime. And so that didn't ultimately feel like coming of age to me because it still felt like you were an adult talking about the past. So I don't know. I, I just felt like I wasn't exactly sure if was was maybe the right word choice or yeah, I don't know. I, I just wasn't sure necessarily whether it was coming of age or whether we can call it coming of age if we're still an adult reflecting back on it or whether that part belongs with the frame narrative. And then we have a change of voice or tone to go from like that adult POV to that child POV, right? A teenager is a child. So that was kind of the tonal change there. And I didn't get a lot of that section because that was just a couple paragraphs before we, we had our five page cutoff. So I would, yeah, I don't know, maybe you can speak to that a little bit about how you imagine that tone change to be or maybe was, was it should have said is instead of was, I'm not sure. Paul? That's a really good question and observation. So yeah, so I mean, as I mentioned it, it's kind of like changed several times o- over the years. So I, I probably need to do a better job of weaving it together. So that's a very good thought. Yeah, I, I probably need to go back through it and make sure that the, I guess when you add the beginning and the start of the story to it, then it does seem more like an adult looking back. And so I probably need to go back through and make sure that that's clearer. Yeah, I would just solidify like that tone, right? Because it's going to be like who you are at 15 or however you you know, who you are at 15 and who you are at 42 or whatever is those are different people, right? Especially if you've been through such a tumultuous experience, like going through recovery, right? And so I just expected, I think, a little bit more of a perspective change there in terms of who exactly the POV is. I think maybe that could have been a bit stronger. Great, Carly. Thank you. Paul, do you have other questions for, for Carly? Anything else you you want to comment on while you have her yet? I don't have anything else. This has been actually more than I thought I would get. So it's really great stuff. Thank you so much. For anybody that is a Ko-Fi listener, the rewrite of Paul's queer letter is going to go up on Ko-Fi. And Paul, I'll send that to you as well. So you have it. So if anybody wants to see the before and after, that'll be up on the Ko-Fi. Yeah, absolutely. So for those of you who are once-off supporters on Ko-Fi, or those of you who are monthly supporters, we do post the additional content with, with this kind of feedback. So for those of you who are supporters there, go and take a look at that. Right, that's it from today's Books with Hooks. Let's move to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky though to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. 
and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hey, I'm Jen Loud, and I host the podcast Create Out Loud. And just like the shit no one tells you about writing, I'm all about the nitty-gritty, going behind the scenes, pulling back the curtain and saying, how can I help you by talking to all kinds of guests, people that are famous like Annie Lamont and Sue Monk Kid that you know and people you've never heard of about how do we actually thrive in this thing called the creative life. I mean, morning pages are great, but let's talk about paying the bills and let's talk about what to do when we hate our work and all those other things. I hope you'll tune in. Hi guys, Carly here. I want to tell you about my newest webinar coming up. It is on April 5th and it is called identifying and cultivating your author brand. And there's a number of reasons why I find this topic so important. And one of the things that I stress in this webinar um, is that your brand, it's not this fabricated and complicated thing. Your author brand is just who you are and how you present yourself online, recognizing these strengths, being strategic at times, but practicing behavior that plays into these strengths. This is what's key. Here's what I'm going to cover. What's the difference between an author brand and an author platform? social media and author website best practices, 
what publishers will do for you versus what you have to do on your own, tips from successful authors, and where to focus your energy for where you are at in your career at this time. Author brand should not be a scary topic, should not be a scary word. It's really just part of being a content creator in the year 2022. And remember, authors are content creators because number one, you are writing a book, you're creating content. Number two, you're selling those books and largely going to promote them online. And number three, you're going to create essays and memes and campaigns, and all of this is going to be marketed online. So it's time to think about, if you haven't already, how to pivot to thinking about yourself as an author brand. So I really look forward to seeing you guys. You can find all the information, carlywaters.com slash webinars, or find me on Twitter at carlywaters. The webinar is going to be April 5th at 8 p.m. Eastern. It will be recorded. So if you want to catch it live, you can. And if not, you can also buy it ahead of time and get the recording sent to you. I hope to see you guys there. Then don't forget that there's still time to sign up for the Books with Hooks book club, which will be happening on the 17th of March. And Cece will be leading that discussion of the book, The Ballerinas. Remember that this isn't a usual kind of book club. This is a book club filled with writers who will be reading the novel and discussing it from that perspective, a deep dive into craft. Then I have a course coming up on the 13th of April from 7 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time called Leaning into Specificity. So you've heard us on the podcast talking about specificity, but what exactly does it mean? So in this two and a half hour webinar, I will take you through the theory of why specificity is so important to the process of elevating a story. I'll also show you examples and lead you through exercises so that you can immediately practically apply everything that you learned. If you want to sign up for the book club or for the specificity course, go to my website, biancamaray.com, look for the courses tab, and you will find the areas there to sign up. Then finally, there's a giveaway happening that we think you would be interested in. If you live in Ontario or near to Ontario, or if you can travel to Ontario, there's a wonderful giveaway happening on Instagram by the account The Guillemot. So that's the and then G-U-I-L-L-E-M-O-T. It's a weekend stay from the 28th and the 29th of May. Uh, there are certain rules there that you need to follow to enter the competition, but it's a place that I've been to write and I can greatly, greatly recommend it. You can either go by yourself to get away from everyone or the uh, cabin. There's an extra cabin there as well at Sleep 6. So you can maybe take your five closest writing friends with you. So head to the Guillemot on Instagram to enter for that. Today's guest is Vice President and Editorial Director at Simon & Schuster in Canada. She's a longtime editor serving many best-selling authors and their books. She lives in Toronto in a house that is only moderately clean. It's my pleasure to welcome Nita Prose. Nita, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca. I'm thrilled to be here chatting with you today. And for our long-time listeners, you will know that Nita was on a early episode with her author, Sam Bailey, in her capacity as editor. And today we get to pick Nita's brain in her capacity as a writer. So Nita, congratulations on the amazing success of The Maid. It's just been hugely, hugely successful. It's been number one New York Times bestseller, a Good Morning America book club pick, 
a number one Canadian bestseller, a Sunday Times bestseller in the UK, and the Irish Times bestseller in Ireland. That is absolutely phenomenal. And because we are writers and because we love backstory, I would love to get the origin story of the maid. It started with you scribbling down a note on a serviette. Is that right? It did. It actually started a little bit before that because... What made me write those notes down on on a napkin on the plane was an encounter that I had at the London Book Fair a few years ago. So I was staying at a London area hotel and with absolutely no intention of writing a debut novel, Bianca, zero intention. But, you know, I went out to a meeting, I came back to the hotel and I completely surprised the roommate who was cleaning my room. And I remember her like stepping back into a shadowy corner. And the really embarrassing part is she was holding my track pants in her hands, which of course, like a fool, I had left in a tangled mess on my bed because I'd gone out for a run that morning. And as I looked at her, I just thought it's such an intimate and invisible job to be a roommate. You know, she'd been cleaning my room day after day. So she knew so much about me and I knew nothing about her. And you know, it's funny the the way little things stick in your brain. And I think that's especially true with authors. You never know where the kernel or the seed for your next novel or next idea is going to come from. And a few days later, I found myself on my plane ride home, and that's when I heard Molly's voice in my head. She's my protagonist in The Maid, and she's very precise, and she's polished to perfection. She has this very clipped voice, or at least that's the way I hear her in my head. And that is when I grabbed that serviette, and that is when I wrote the prologue to the book in a single burst. Even then, I didn't really realize that I was about to write my debut novel. So let's start with the prologue, because on the podcast, we generally get submissions from writers who ask us to look at the opening pages, and we generally saying, stay away from prologues, etc. And I know that you as an editor have probably steered your writers, your authors, perhaps either away from a prologue or towards a prologue. So can we talk about why you felt it necessitated that particular prologue? Because in this instance, it works incredibly well. I think if you do include a prologue, it has to do something. You have to match the form and function to what you're writing. In my case, this is a mystery novel, and it's also a voice-driven mystery novel with a character really driving that sense of mystery. And so for me, giving the reader both a sense of who was telling the story and also just sort of an introduction into an unusual voice was absolutely essential to hoping that I could hook them on the journey that was to come. Yeah, that's very true in terms of that introduction to that unusual voice, very much so. So your protagonist is neurodivergent. She doesn't call herself that. She doesn't say that this is something perhaps that she's being diagnosed with, but she knows that she's kind of different. She's a bit eccentric. She likes things a certain way. So in terms of writing first person for a neurodivergent character, what were the challenges that were posed there and how did you overcome those? Well, the first thing I'll say is that it was really important for me not to label Molly in any way. So that is not a word that I actually use in any of the copy, in any description of Molly. Molly exists in a place, in a time, and in social circumstances that would never allow her to be able to have the kind of diagnosis that many people might have access to, but a lot 
And I mean a lot of people in the real world simply do not. And Molly is one of those people. And, you know, again, the seeds, the seeds of story are so interesting. So many years ago, before I actually started my work as an editor, I worked with special needs students and I was a teacher. So some of those experiences with my students really stuck with me. And something I always noted, they came with all kinds of labels and those of course had great intentionality. It helped educators tailor learning plans and education methods that would help them learn. But when we were out in the world on a field trip or, or just grabbing lunch, I was so shocked by the casual cruelty of the world. And that's an experience that always stuck with me. So when it came to creating Molly, I knew that I wanted to honor something that I learned from those students. And it's a funny thing. I went into that job feeling like, well, I am the teacher. And I came out very much the student and learned so much about these kids and about the world. And all of these kids were so adaptable, so resilient, so capable of change that people could never give them credit for, much more so, in my opinion, than so-called normative folks. And so when in my creation of Molly as a character, it was really important to me not to have her labeled from the outset. My goal is for the reader to step behind her eyes, to see as her, and to not place her in a compartment of other right from the get-go of the story. I really want readers to feel and experience what it is like to be her, and my hope is that if I've done my job right, then to live as Molly is to love her. Yeah, very much so, because in the beginning you go, is she a little bit eccentric? Because there's certainly eccentricities there, and she has a very particular way of speaking, and then you realize how much of that came from her gran, who loomed so large in her life, who was this wonderful support system in her life. And so as you go on the journey with her, you're constantly shifting in your assessment of her, which I thought was incredibly smart, because if you'd put something like that on the flap copy, we as readers go in with this preconceived notion of who Molly is, That's and right. we think we understand her. Whereas this way, I feel like you made the reader do the heavy lifting in terms of constantly trying to figure Molly out, which is, I think, how most people who react to Molly in the real world of your novel are the same. There are some who react so much better to her and who are so much more accommodating of her. And like you said, there's so much casual cruelty along the way. Absolutely. And I think you've noted some things that are really important to me as a writer. You know, Molly says something. She says at some point that people are a mystery that can never be solved. And in my work as a writer, one of my major challenges was to work within a very heavily trod genre where so many masters have gone before and created incredible works. My job was to innovate it and bring something new to it. So, you know, there is the whodunit aspects, obviously, that are come out right in the first chapter. We are trying to solve the murder of Mr. Black, and it is a whodunit. But there is another angle to the whodunit that I hope comes out through the book, and as you've alluded to here, and that's that people are mysterious. People have many facets and sides, and my hope was that the reader could discover Molly page by page, and that who she was would actually evolve as the reader starts to understand her. Yeah, very much so. And it's not just for Molly that people are a mystery. I think the rest of us think we've got people figured out. 
but often we really don't because so much of it is us projecting what we perceive onto other people in terms of their intentions, in terms of all kinds of things. And I think we get people wrong a lot of the time. And there's a lot of times that Molly does get people wrong to her detriment, but there's something there that sees to the heart of people often, which really made her shine. In terms of the cozy murder mystery element of it, are you inclined to the cozy murder mysteries or is this something that also just happened without you having any intention of of going in that direction? (laughs) I am a reading omnivore. If you put a cereal package in front of me, I would have to read every word on the package. It's just the way I'm built. And I do read across many wide ranging genres. So I am attracted to the mystery and I love the murder mystery, but it's just one of many forms to me that I love to read. So my sort of intersection of interest is always looking for ways to combine genres, looking for the possibility of creating a Frankenstein book out of two genres. And in this case, it was the classical, traditional, whodunit style, cozy mystery And the idea of uplit, uh, as the Brits call it, uplifting literature or feel-good fiction, as we sometimes refer to it in North America. These are books that are led by a journey of the spirit and an impulse towards hope. So in creating the tapestry in in which Molly would thrive or arise or have conflicts, etc., and she has all of those things, I really wanted to combine both of those universes. And it was part of the ambition for me to see if I could find a place where a murder mystery and those feel-good elements could exist on the page. And those aren't two things that really commonly go together. A feel-good murder mystery, huh? (laughs) And that was part of the fun. That was part of the challenge for me was to see if I could find a way to make that work. But I think it was even more than that because I feel like you combined even women's fiction into it. Like what does it mean to be a woman in the world today? Because Molly's got her own kind of problems. She's dealing with grief. She's dealing with all of these things, just trying to figure people out. But she's also getting these huge crushes. And there's instances it's like, will he call me back? Will he be in touch? And just finding her people and finding sisterhood as well. So there was a lot of uh, blurring of lines there in terms of genre. And probably one of the reasons why it's been so incredibly popular because it reaches a much wider demographic that way. Yeah, well, you are hitting on something that for me is definitely an area thematically of interest. And that is the role of women in the world and how we find ourselves and who we find along our journeys, who we need and keep close. So matriarchs are something that that's a role that really fascinates me. In my real life, I was so lucky to have my mother, who was just a great matriarch, the kind that Gran is in the book. This solid, nurturing person who just gives love unconditionally and only wants to protect and only wants the best for her granddaughter, in this case, Molly. And in some ways, I wanted to give the reader that gift. You know, maybe some of the readers out there were lucky enough, like me, to have a great matriarch in her life at some point. My mom has passed now, but 
And maybe some readers weren't, but either way, Gran was a character that I wanted them to be left with. But of course, you are pointing to the fact that there are concentric circles and there are different women here who represent different things. I was very surprised that at some point, some of the women are not so good. They, they do some dastardly things, right? But that is part of the panoply of our existence. And certainly that's as true of the female existence as it is of any other. Listen, when it comes to feminism, we want equal rights, which means equal rights to do dastardly deeds, you know. <laughs> exactly. This, it shouldn't just be dastardly deeds are allowed just to be done by men. I feel like women should be allowed to be as diabolical if that's what they choose to be. Especially in fiction. I mean, come on. That's the perfect place for it. <laughs> Absolutely. And when it came to the cozy murder mystery elements, I saw you had a lot of fun with the names in terms of colors. Can you tell us a bit about that? Was that something that was always in the back of your mind when you were naming characters? I kind of kept a mood board in my head and there were various influences on that mood board. So one of them was the fantastic uplit book, Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine, a very voice-driven novel by Gail Honeyman where the leading protagonist was almost like a cactus, had so many prickles and was not always easy to love. And yet by the end of the novel, we do love her. So that was on my mood board. And Agatha Christie, of course, the master of mystery, this incredible writer who could describe a character in three words. And from those three little words, you would have a fully formed picture in your mind of who this person was. And another one of the influences that was on that mood board was the board game Clue. <laughs> so I don't know if you played it, Bianca, when you were a child, but I certainly did. And for some reason, it found its way onto my pages. As I said, this is a character-driven book, but the whodunit is something I wanted to play with, something I wanted the readers to have fun with. Is it the bartender with a rope in the kitchen, or is it the maid with a pillow in the bedroom? A very clue-like combination of place, person, and object. So I found myself writing in a way that might be a little nod to my childhood and to the wonderful game of Clue, as we call it in North America, and Cluedo, as I learned after writing the book, as they call it in Britain. And in South Africa as well. Uh, yes. Okay, that's what I was wondering. That's what yeah. I was wondering. So yeah. you know it as Cluedo. I know it as Cluedo, and as I was reading, I was like, Nita was definitely influenced by Cluedo, and I was loving it. It was <laughs> Mr. Black, and it's Molly Gray, and all of these things. So it was very much, was it the candlestick in the billiards room kind of thing, which was, yeah, exactly. which was, which was wonderful. So as an editor who started writing, something that sounded like you had zero intention of segueing into a writing career. Once you decided you were going to write this, did you plot it out? Did you pants it? How long did it take you? Can you take us through that? Sure. I definitely am not a pantser. I require certain amounts of structure even to allow myself to begin. So yes, I got the gift of Molly as a voice in my head and I knew that right away and that just came out in that wonderful unplanned way. But after that, I really did sit down and map out the structure and the characters in the world so that I knew the sort of tapestry that I was writing from. I also think of myself as a what I call a tentpole writer. And what I mean by that is I need to know in my architecture some of those important twists, turns, or, you know, solid points that are going to happen in the novel, those moments that are essential. 
And those to me are a way of motivating myself so that I can get through those early mornings when I write because I know where I'm going, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. And that keeps me writing. That keeps me glued to the process of writing the scenes that are going to give me direction and, and allow me to make my way to those tent poles. So that's the kind of writer I am. And as for timelines, I have two answers for how long this took me. One is five months and the other is 20 years. And both are true. So what I mean by that is that I've worked for more or less two decades in the publishing industry. And through that work with authors and agents and publishers, I have learned so very much. And I credit my authors in particular with teaching me everything I needed to know about structure and narrative in order to tell this story, which is why it took me about five months to complete my first draft, which for all the writers out there listening, you know that that's not a very long time to get a draft down. Now, I'm not saying it was perfect after those five months, but I'm saying at least the architecture was on the page. There was a vision for what the world would be. And again, I really credit my work in this industry with allowing me to be able to work that quickly. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. Five months is absolutely amazing. In terms of the mystery itself, did you know from the outset who did it, exactly what happened, and then you reverse engineered everything backwards? Because I'm busy working on something like that at the moment. I know exactly what the premise is. I have no bloody idea who did it, and I'm writing to figure it out. <laughs> I think if you know and you reverse engineer backwards, it's much easier. Is that how you did it? I don't know. Because I've only written one book, I have no idea what is easier. All I know is that everything in writing is difficult. That being said, I did know who killed Mr. Black from the very beginning. Like I knew as soon as I knew my characters, who did it, why, and it sort of, as I said before, like the concentric circles of how that would make sense in this novel. That I definitely knew. Yeah. And then once the book was written, Nita, there was, I mean, it was a bidding war for this book. Everyone wanted it. Everyone was fighting over it. So you still then, what, had to get an agent? Did you go to your favorite agent who sold you a ton of books and gone, will you be my agent? How did that work? I've gotten this question a lot. And one of the immediate assumptions is, oh, well, it must have been so easy. You're in the industry. So you've got the easy route. Let me just say that's not exactly how it was because I work in this industry I was so terrified of sharing my work with people who I could after that would always of course reject my work and then I'd have to know they thought I was a terrible writer and I'd have to see them and work with them every single day so that idea while I was writing was something I really had to sort of keep in the background and not think about too much because it was so paralyzing. So when I did finish my first draft and thought, okay, I may have something here. I may actually have something that works. Let me tell you, it took me some time to put my big girl boots on and to actually press send on that manuscript and send it to a few of the agents who I thought might understand what I was trying to do. And yeah, in my mind, there was only one way this was going to go. Oh, Nita, that's really lovely. You've written something. I see you're trying to be a writer. You've got a long way to go. And they would politely reject me. And I would lick my wounds and be mortified and then have to face them for the rest of my earthly career as an editor. That is how it played out in my head. But in fact, in reality, there were a few very highly esteemed agents who I reached out to 
And the one that I really, really had always hoped would see what I was putting out there was Madeline Milburn, who was the agent on that book I mentioned before, Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine, which is a huge global bestseller and a real paradigm changer in terms of genre fiction in some really important ways. And she understood it as uplit and a mystery. She understood how I was trying to combine two forms to come up with something that was maybe a little bit original or a Frankenstein. (laughs) It's amazing when that melding of the minds happens. It feels like you've met your kind of literary soulmate when a writer and an agent just meld that way. And it really bodes well for all future projects. Something I want to pick your brain on, Nita, as an editor and as a writer, because I'm seeing this quite a lot. I read opening pages and things like that for a lot of our listeners and try and give them critique. And something that we're seeing is where scenes just kind of fall flat. It's almost like they're there for the sake of being there. They don't do the heavy lifting that they're meant to do. Now, in my mind, when you write a scene, it kind of needs to fulfill two basic purposes. The one is revealing stuff about characterization. And second is it needs to be moving the plot forward. I've always said every scene needs to be like dominoes lined up. And if you remove one scene, the dominoes stop falling because that scene was so integral to the book that if you take it out, everything else doesn't kind of make sense from there. What advice do you have for writers when sitting down and either planning the scene they're writing or after they've written the scene, evaluating it to say, does the scene deserve to be here? Is it doing the kind of heavy lifting it needs to do? Or does it need to be reworked? Do you have like a formula of how you approach scenes? What's your advice there? I think before you start, you often will have this creative surge of energy and that, that that's going to drive you to write. And that is a wonderful feeling, but it's not a feeling that should entirely be trusted. And so if you have that feeling, great, hold on to it. And hold on to it with restraint. And while you continue to have that feeling, do a little mind mapping to help you understand what it is you are going to accomplish with that scene. What is the start and what is the end point? What change happens in the arc of that chapter or scene or story or moment? Understand how this piece fits in, as you said, into the map of the whole. And often, before you've even gone about writing the scene, you can avoid making some tragic mistakes and finding out too late that what you've actually written are a whole series of notes towards a scene rather than an actual scene. So that is one of my tips, I would say, for fast tracking your work so that you don't have to write something eight times and you can only write it maybe three or four times would be be ideal. We all want that, I think, don't we, Bianca? Only three or four. That would be marvelous. As a pencil, I have to do it way more often. But in terms of the change you were talking about, and that's so important, a change needs to take place during the course of that scene, either in terms of the character's viewpoint, in terms of their emotional setting. So how they feel at the beginning of the scene needs to be different to how they feel at the end of the scene. And something needs to change in terms of the plot that keeps the readers asking questions and turning pages. So something's revealed that the reader didn't know, or perhaps they thought one thing And then something else is revealed. Is that what you were meaning in terms of change? Yes. Another way to put it is to call it the inciting incident. What is the inciting incident of this scene? And are there smaller ones and a main one? Sometimes there might be. 
But an inciting incident is going to be a catalyst for change. And so you have to know what that is in a scene. And if there isn't any, one has to ask, what's the scene there for? Because it can be intrinsic or extrinsic. As you said, it could be plot-driven or it could be character-driven. Both things are inciting incidents, right? Yeah, very much so. And I find that the beginning of my work tends to have these lazy scenes that shouldn't be there because we're so busy looking at the damn word count. We're so busy saying, I want to up my word count that we kind of bloat the front end of a novel. And I find that my scenes in the third act all need to be there because by then I'm like, oh shit, I'm at 90,000 words. I'm already over. I'm much more cutthroat at that point in terms of what can be on the page. And some people, you know, I think bloat is okay in an early draft, as long as you have the courage to cut later. A lot of people write like that. They write a very bloated draft that includes notes and the story. And then slowly but surely, they can whittle away to find really the more bare elements of what that novel should be. Yeah, very much so. Nita, what a joy it's been to chat to you. It was wonderful chatting to you as an editor the first time. And at that point, The Maid was this distant thing that was going to be happening. And it's been such a joy to see the enormous success you've had with it. Can we ask if there will be another Molly Gray story or are you not ready to talk about that just yet? No, I'm happy to talk about it. It's just that I don't have a defined answer. (laughs) That's the only problem, Bianca. So at the moment, I'm working on some things. I have a few ideas that I'm just starting to sort out and figure out in my mind. And I haven't really committed to exactly what I'm going to do next. It may be another Molly book, or it may be entirely different and yet entirely the same because I cannot change who I am as a writer. Regardless, I most definitely look forward to trying again my hand at my second novel, and I hope I will deliver something that readers enjoy. I'm sure you will. And I know that film rights have been sold. Is it film or is it a series? It is film. So yes, Universal Pictures has picked up the option for the film and Florence Pugh Academy Award nominee of Little Women, who also starred in Black Widow and many other amazing things, is set to star. And I could not be more excited about that prospect of seeing it on the screen. I think the only thing that would make me more excited is to see this brought to the stage. I think it'll make a phenomenal play. I'm just putting it out there. Thank you. Please put it out there. Put it out there. And maybe one day it will come to fruition. (laughs) And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom 
to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.